The following program is produced and furnished in conjunction with Roger Waldron of the Coalition for Government Procurement, which is entirely responsible for its content. Welcome to Off the Shelf with Roger Waldron of the Coalition for Government Procurement. Off the Shelf gives a voice to commercial service and product companies selling in the federal market. Roger speaks to members and government officials about procurement policy trends, innovations, and debates. Off the Shelf on Federal News Radio 1500 AM. Now your host, Roger Waldron. Today my guest on Off the Shelf is Emily Murphy. Emily is the administrator of the General Services Administration. Uh, Emily has a long and uh, varied background in government procurement. Uh, Emily served as as the very first Chief Acquisition Officer at the General Services Administration. She also was a Senior Advisor at the SBA. Uh, This was during the Bush administrations, uh, the second Bush administration. Um, She also served on the Hill, both for the uh, House Small Business Committee and the House Armed Services Committee, as well as in the private sector. Uh, And I'm really looking forward to this conversation. Emily, welcome to the show. Thanks so much, Roger. Glad to be here. Well, um, so let's start big picture. And one of the big picture items that's out there right now um, that you are working on at GSA in particular is Section 846, which has the potential to reform government procurement. It's what could be one of the most consequential procurement reform provisions in the la- in the generation, right, since since we were back in the Bush administration uh, previously. Um, can you talk a little bit about, you know, where GSA is in, on it, the implementation plan, and, you know, sort of next steps? I'm just going to open it up and go ahead. Thanks, Roger. As you know, the law passed, Section 846 passed end of last year, right around the same time I was being sworn in. It's very interesting to see a piece of legislation address, you know, directing the Administrator of General Services to do something and realize they meant me. Uh, a, a Christmas present for you. Yes, right? <laughs> exactly. Well, hey, th- as long as the Senate confirmed me, I was happy at that okay. point in time. <laughs> it was a good Christmas. Uh, actually, the very first public speaking engagement I did after being sworn in was when we did the Industry Day on Section 846. And if you recall, we had 200 people come into GSA to talk about how we were going to implement the commercial platform ideas. We had another 300 people participate through the magic of technology virtually. And the key message I led off with that day was that I wanted this to be a conversation, an ongoing dialogue between GSA, our customers, and industry. So we've spent a lot of time having that conversation. The first deliverable was due March 15th, and that was a report laying out what is our plan for actually implementing this provision. First, I want to make a note that the plan was delivered on time, right? Within it, the statutory deadline, It was on right? time, yes. There you uh, go. <laughs> trying to make sure that we adhere to all of those deadlines. And in it, we actually asked Congress for four legislative changes as well. Specifically came back and said, there are four things that we think would help us do this better. First one, and the one that's gotten the most interest from folks is that we asked for an increase in the micro-purchase threshold for purposes of any of the portals that we use. Uh, we asked that instead of having it be 10000 for civilian agencies and 5000 for defense agencies, that if someone went through one of these commercial platforms, that it'd be 25000 We did so deliberately because our market research was indicating that agencies are already using commercial platforms for their purchases under the micro-purchase threshold. If you look at 2016, about $100 million went through Amazon, another $16 million went through Walmart.com. And if you keep going through the other sites, you'll see that there's a fair amount of federal activity there. So as we're trying to come up with a framework where we better organize how we're, we're spending this money, and we, get, and we really try and leverage 
the power that's behind these tools. We wanted to make sure that there was actually an incentive for agencies to go through the .gov version of or to use a government-sponsored version of the portal. Two other areas we asked for some leeway on were actually how do we define competition to make sure that if you went in and uh, made an award using one of these portals that it would count as competition. Right, that's giving GSA the authority, much that you like you do in the schedules program statutorily to define the, you know, what does competition, what the process is. is exactly. That? And then the uh, other request we had was looking at how we run the portal. And would it be permissible for GSA to run sort of a portal of portals? Because one of the ideas behind the commercial platform is it was supposed to elevate some of the burden on the acquisition workforce. And we want to make sure that this is a competitive arena so that there's not just one winner of a contract to run these portals. But we also don't want to force contracting officers to go to a dozen or more portals before they make any determination. We want to make sure that we aggregate the data. So we ask for that opportunity. We're not convinced that that's the way we want to go, but we wanted to see if that was an option that was on the table. We're very pleased to see that Chairman Mac Thornberry from the House Armed Services Committee included a lot of these recommendations in his standalone acquisition bill. So very grateful to Chairman Thornberry for doing that and for his continued support for the program. We're now in phase two of the implementation, and phase two is really market research. So it's a lot more of that conversation. It's understanding, once again, what are the opportunities out there? How does this marketplace work? What are the requirements from our customers? What are the requirements from our vendors? And how does this all fit together? How does it work with GSA's existing contract vehicles? So it's going to be a lot more dialogue. I know that we're actually, uh, I'm going to be with you in a couple of weeks. At That's the, right, May 16th. At the coalition. Um, but I, and then I believe that in June, we're doing another industry day to try okay. and, and have, you know, further the conversation. So when I started off by saying that I wanted this to be a dialogue, we're trying to really make sure that we're putting in place all the elements to make sure that it is an ongoing dialogue between industry and GSA. Are you reaching out to customer agencies as well and talking to them about their requirements? We are indeed. Um, and it's interesting. Some of our customer agencies are pushing us to go further and faster than I think we're prepared to do. We're trying to make sure we get this right. My first priority as GSA administrator has always been ethical leadership, which I said means that we are... GSA is really going to act as an honest broker between our customer agencies and our vendors. That means asking a lot of questions and being very deliberate, not slow, but deliberate in, in the actions we take to make sure that we really deliver on our promise of best value. Yeah, and I know one of the biggest challenges that you know, GSA has is that balance between streamlining the power potentially of e-commerce mm -hmm. solutions to streamline acquisition versus you know, government unique requirements and commercial item contracting. Um, you have any thoughts on that? I think it's one of the areas that we continue to struggle with. I think some of the work the 809 panel is doing on how do we define commercial item should hopefully be helpful in driving a single definition of commercial item. I think the idea that we want to make it easier to buy COTS quickly, um, that we've sort of strayed from our roots of the original acquisition reforms, and we've added a lot more clauses and a lot more flow-down clauses to those contracts. So one of the other areas where GSA is actively you know, soliciting input from industry is on our regulatory reform task force. How can we do a better job? How can we make it simpler? And I actually think that going back to the commercial portal, it gives us an opportunity to sort of test some of those ideas and hopefully leverage those ideas and those reforms within our other contract vehicles as well. I was gonna say, it's, it's interesting because you were talking about uh, – customer feedback earlier. Sure, yeah. And one of the areas that customers are looking at with us is that they think it 
takes too long to buy COTS items. That is one of the pieces of feedback we've gotten, that it's too long and too complicated to buy those. Another is that they're trying to address their own workforce issues. And they see this portal as being a way that they can save their workforce sometimes and you know, by using a portal and instead have their workforce devoting their time and energy to what they consider higher value spend. So in this next phase, so you there's an industry day scheduled for June of this year. I believe it's June of this year, yes. And um, is the same team that you have at GSA going to be working through this? Laura Stanton Laura Stanton's continuing to lead that, yes. yes. Yeah. And are you also, is there outreach on an ongoing basis across GSA as well? Are you talking to you know, people out in the region who you know, manage contracting programs about get, getting their ideas and feedback on yes. it? Yes. So there's definitely a conversation with the regions. Um, personally, I've actually been out in the regions. This is one of the topics that always comes up. But we've been trying to facilitate conversation with the regions, conversation with cu- our customers, also making sure that our other stakeholders, the Hill, that we're routinely briefing them on the progress we're making, GAO has become its first engagement. They're uh, part of this process, right? You they are to give part the of this report, process, right, yes. Yeah, the report to them, yeah. Uh, so GAO's actually already started their first review of how we're implementing. And how has the feedback been so far from the various stakeholders? So, so far the feedback's been very productive. Um, I think that the Hill appreciates that we've been keeping them informed and that we're making sure that this is an honest, ongoing dialogue where we talk about the challenges we're facing and the opportunities we're seeing. The customer agencies appreciate that we're trying to make sure that what we develop meets their requirements. And I believe industry appreciates that we're not trying to hide the ball from them on this, that we're trying to go out and get as much information from them as we can, that we're trying to make this a productive you know, opportunity for everyone involved. Right. And Emily, we're already up on the first break, so and we just covered the, the Section 846. We've got a long, long way to go here. And when we come back, we're going to talk about, uh, if you don't mind, your, your priorities for GSA, okay. your four priorities, um, good stuff. My guest today is Administrator Emily Murphy from the General Services Administration, and you are listening to Off the Shelf on Federal News Radio, 1500 AM. Welcome back to Off the Shelf on Federal News Radio, 1500 AM. Today, my guest is Administrator Emily Murphy from the General Services Administration, and we're talking all things procurement. Right, Emily? Yes. <laughs> yeah. So, um, And in this segment, uh, uh, we're going to talk about uh, your four priorities for GSA, ethical leadership, reduced duplication, something that I know companies and contractors care a lot about, uh, increased competition, and improved transparency. Um, so, Emily... Let's first talk about ethical leadership. And I noticed that's listed first, which I think is a great place to have it. It is. And when I say ethical leadership, obviously I mean doing the right things, following the rules. But I want to be clear that I mean more than that. That GSA really needs to be an honest broker that agency customers can trust, uh, that our industry partners can trust, and that taxpayers have faith that we're acting in their best interests. It means when we make a mistake, we own up to it, we admit it, and we fix it. It means that, you know, that we're always looking for ways to improve. So it's more than just following the letter of the law. It's really trying to adhere to the spirit of really delivering value and putting taxpayers first. Yeah, and that's, I mean, you're really talking about GSA's fundamental mission mm-hmm. there and, you know, sort of reinforcing that for folks. And you, you're outgoing, as you mentioned, the first time you've been visiting regions and talking about that in particular. How are uh, the rank and file responding? I think that they're very supportive of it because it means also that I want to hear what they have to say, Um, that it is that dialogue back and forth, and that if they see something that they think where we have an opportunity to improve, that I'm making it clear that there's an opportunity to come and talk to me about that. 
that this is not just me being back in D.C. or having a leadership team that is walled off from them, but being a group of people they can engage with who are just as invested in the agency as they are and that believe in their mission just as much as they do. Right. And, you know, I just don't want when you're when you're saying that I'm thinking about it's important to listen to. Right. Mm -hmm. When you're a leader. Right. Of an organization. Hear what the folks have to say. The best ideas. Right. Often come from the rank and file. Right. One of my favorite things to do when I visit the regions is town halls. I love having the opportunity to sit down and just talk to the group and hear what they want to talk about and the questions they want to raise, issues they want to make sure we're addressing. So it's a wonderful opportunity. I wish I could spend more time out there doing that. Yeah, that uh, it is definitely that's a, definitely a great thing to do. Um, and again, that's a, that helps with morale of the employees, right? That the leadership cares about what they have to say and the input and and what they do on a daily basis. You know, that's fundamental to a positive organization. So let's talk about reduced duplication. One of my favorite topics. So <laughs> and there's so much to talk about. Oh, there about is duplication. duplication. Yes, there's so much to talk about. And Roger, you remember when we were at GSA together 13 years ago, 12, 13 years ago, we had the Federal Supply Service, the Federal Technology Service, it merged into the Federal Acquisition Service. Everyone had their own CIO. Everyone had their own comptroller, CFO. We had a lot of duplication within GSA. Yes. GSA has done a lot in the last 10 years in reducing that duplication. Doesn't mean we're all the way there, uh, but we've got a Federal Acquisition Service and the Federal Technology Transformation Service is now part of that and they're leveraging each other's strengths. So that's been a wonderful way to reduce duplication. But we're also down to one CIO and one CFO, and really we're practicing what we preach on reducing duplication. If you look at systems, do you remember um, the old Lotus Note system we had that ran all the applications behind FTS and, and FSS? Yes, you're making me feel really old there, Emily. I, know <laughs> I was there with you, so <laughs> it's amazing they let us work as children, isn't right, it? That's, yeah, that's right. It's amazing what they do. <laughs> uh, so there were over 7,000 of those unique applications and behind the Federal Acquisition Service. We're down to about 173 of them. There's still a lot of work to be done there. And I think reducing that duplication and those systems will not only save money in O&M costs, which is a great thing in and of itself, but it gives us the opportunity to make sure the business systems we have are driving the right business processes rather than having our business processes being driven by antiquated business systems. That means we can hopefully reduce barriers to entry and for compliance for vendors, Mm -hmm. but also barriers to access for our customers make it easier for them to use GSA Advantage, uh, make it easier for them to search the catalogs, make it easier for businesses to modify their contract and add new items, make it easier to run competitions. So within GSA, there's a lot of opportunity for reducing duplication still, but as part of the presence management agenda, GSA also has the ability to try and reduce duplication across the government. I've been asked to, along with OMB, co-lead the cross-agency priority goal on sharing quality services. How can we do a better job of supporting other agencies? We're starting off with payroll. We had a draft RFP go out in January. We hope to have a RFP on the street fairly soon. And we've got about 16 different services. We're looking at trying to offer a shared service mentality to over the next 10 years. And when I say that, I wanna be clear, I don't mean GSA is going to come in and do something, you know, do something for everyone. Right. Uh, or that GSA is going to take over a role. It's really about GSA, first of all, listening, as you pointed out earlier, it's an important part of it, to other agencies, making sure we understand the requirements. 
And the Unified Shared Services Management Group has done a wonderful job and can to do a great job of going out and coordinating those requirements and capturing that information. Then it's about trying to see, is a contract the right way to proceed? And in many cases, I think it is. Software as a service or utilizing best practices in the private sector makes a lot of sense. But we never want there to be one vendor. We want there to make sure that there are multiple multiple vendors, frankly, so that agencies have choices, but also so that we don't end up in a situation where we've only got one provider and we find ourselves in a situation where we've got a legacy system that's just owned by someone else rather than a legacy system we own ourselves. So trying to be cognizant of how the future and how this is going to continue to evolve. In some cases, the answer may be that a federal agency should be performing the work. For example, I think Treasury is always going to process our payments. That's within their mission. They're good at it. We should let them do that. In other cases, it might mean that GSA actually just helps out with service contracts to help agencies run the systems they already have. Um, In some cases, it may be a combination of that service contract and a solutions contract that GSA has in place and allowing agencies to leverage both of those. So there's not going to be a one-size-fits-all answer. The difference, though, is that we're going to try and keep everyone from overly customizing everything. I'll give you an example, the travel systems in the government. We primarily all use the same travel system, but we've all customized it so there are now 47 different versions of that one software package in the government, which makes it very hard for us to leverage. That makes my head hurt. Doesn't it, though? (laughs) Yes, yeah. You know, we have over 100 different time and attendance systems in the government. Uh, that, yeah, that well, yeah. I could believe that. Yeah, absolutely. So <laughs> there are cases when agencies are special, but none of us are as special as we think we are in every single instance. So it's a lot about allowing agencies to be special when they need to be special. But when you don't need to be special, let's keep it to a core set of requirements and keep us from all customizing everything so that we lose the advantage of the progress we're hoping to make. And we do need to make progress because there was a study that was conducted that showed that over 50% of the top federal executives are unsatisfied with the administrative services they receive. And we're spending $28.6 billion a year to have people be unsatisfied. It sounds to me, Emily, I was like a little bit, no, just sorry to interrupt, but just Mm -hmm. that's, it's almost like taking GSA's sort of shared services model, because I firmly believe haven't worked at GSA, it is a shared services mm-hmm. organization, and sort of taking it to another le- next level and applying it and lessons learned and things that GSA does well in other areas where like payroll or you know HR, those kind of things. That, Contract closeout. Yeah. And always putting a customer experience focus on it also, that we want to make sure that we're making it easier for agencies to accomplish their mission, that we're not creating another set of hurdles for them. Take another area where I'm looking to reduce duplication, and that probably will ring true for you, is uh, in in the schedules program. So how do we make sure that we've structured the schedules program in such a way that do we need all of the schedules we have? Or could some of them be combined? And would that allow for greater solutions? Right. Um, That would mean that there would be less administrative burden for companies that are on multiple schedules. It would also make it easier for our vendor agencies to be able to create solutions. And Emily, you know what? We're going to have to take the break. We're already up. We didn't. We only got through two of your priorities. We'll talk about okay. the other two, increasing competition and improving transparency in the next segment. And we'll try to also get to 
the MIT modernization stuff. That's a big agenda for the next segment, but I'm confident we'll get to it. My guest today is Emily Murphy. She's the administrator of the General Services Administration, and you're listening to Off the Shelf on Federal News Radio, 1500 AM. Welcome back to Off the Shelf on Federal News Radio, 1500 AM. Today, my guest is Emily Murphy, Administrator of the General Services Administration. And uh, Emily, um, when we took the break, uh, we'd gotten through two of your priorities, um, ethical uh, leadership and reducing duplication. And uh, we could spend a whole show on both of those, let alone uh, the other two. But let's talk about your third priority, uh, increasing competition. Thanks, Roger. So when I first started talking about increasing competition, everyone heard me saying that I wanted to make sure that it was at the task order level as well as as the contract level. And I think that there might have been some confusion as to what I really meant by that. What I'm suggesting isn't simply that we want to make sure we get more offers. I do want to make sure we get more offers. But I want to make sure that we're very cognizant of how we structure our procurements, that we structure them in a way that we encourage competition when we only get one bid, we go back and we ask ourselves why, what could we have done to better structure it going forward? doesn't mean canceling that procurement, but it means asking ourselves, all right, should we have done more market research? Could there have been more industry engagement? Should we possibly have not released the RFP on the Friday before a holiday weekend? You know, yeah, what, that's, that's a big one. You like that one? <laughs> yes. Um, but competition's more than that. It also means looking at how do we make sure we've got a competition of ideas going on. How do we move ourselves away from an LPTA mentality to a best value solution? So we're really trying to find the right answers for our customers rather than trying to protest-proof any procurement. So when I talk about competition, I'm talking about more than just that one number of how many awards were done with full and open competition. I'm really talking about how do we make sure that we, again, get the right solution, the right answer for our customers in a way that our taxpayers can have faith and credit. And that we're doing it in the, right, in the and best just a, a follow-up question on that because mm-hmm. when, when you described that the you know competition of ideas, what I, what I thought about there is the the old concept that people don't use the term that much about performance-based contracting. Right mm-hmm. here, having the contractor, you know, here's my problem, here's the outcome I want as a government entity. You tell us how you're going to do it. Right? Is that I think that absolutely part of it. Not being overly prescriptive with the requirements, instead laying out a clear set of results that we want. They're letting our vendors come in and be creative and do what they do best, which is figure out how to solve that problem rather than telling them how to solve it from the beginning. A lot of the advances we've seen with agile procurement, for example, also break things up into smaller chunks so you can you have measurable deliverables that you can then build upon. And you have the opportunity to succeed quickly or fail quickly. And if you fail quickly, you fail quickly at a very small dollar value, and then you can readjust and go forward and keep moving forward, getting that right result. So it's about trying to understand that there's no one right way to contract. You have to understand what the requirements you have are, what's driving those requirements, and what kind of solutions could possibly meet those requirements, and then developing an acquisition strategy around those those elements. Yeah, and I think... Close related to increasing competition is increasing transparency. Can you mm-hmm. talk about that priority a little bit? So I think transparency really is what gives everyone confidence that we've met the first three goals, the ethical leadership, you know, the reducing duplication, the increasing competition. It means showing your work, making sure that we've got the systems that tell you, you know, federal procurement data system, improving that data. I think I may be the only GSA administrator ever to run their own FPDS reports. I'm not sure that that's really 
That's a, a scary gold, thought there. Yes. I'm like, <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, making sure that the federal real property profiles are now all out online so you can go and see all the property the federal government owns. But it's about a feedback loop also of making sure that that we're transparent with the activities we're taking so that we can understand are there policies that need to be changed, that need to be influenced by that? Do you remember when we created the procurement management review process years ago? Yeah, PMRs, yeah. And, and that we tied that into both training and into policy. So that if we found that there was an issue, you could either adopt more training to address that issue quickly, or in some cases it suggested that our policy either needed to be clearer or that our policy might be misguided in some cases, that it didn't account for the realities of the work that was taking place. So I think transparency helps not just GSA have those conversations, but allows the public and our customer agencies to be involved in that. I would love to see a GSA where we were better able to use the data that we have in partnership with our other agencies and help them come up with better solutions. Going back to those first three priorities of increasing competition, reducing duplication, and ethical leadership, I think transparency helps get us there. Yeah, absolutely. I couldn't agree more. And let's let's talk a little bit about, well, I mean, I guess it helps with all three, but, you know, with transparency, IT modernization. Yes. Um, and, you know, the IT modernization fund was created. Uh, GSA has a role in, mm-hmm. to play. You know, you, I think about the technology transformation service being merged into FAS and being able to leverage that capability across the new organization. Um, you know, thought that was, a, you know, I think that was very, very well received by, um, you know, your industry partners mm-hmm. out there when that took place. Um, so talk a little bit about GSA's role in IT modernization. So I think that when you look across the government, we're spending about $90 billion a year on technology, technology-related services. We can do a better job with it. If you look at within agencies, you'll see we're still using COBOL uh, as our programming language in some cases. As I mentioned earlier, we've got some of our business processes are being driven by outdated systems. And it's frankly making it harder for both our customers, taxpayers, and vendors to deal with GSA or with our customer agencies. So I think GSA has got an important role, not just from the technology transformation service perspective, where we've got a lot of great resources, but also if you look at the information technology category, the great work that takes place in the Office of Government Policy on IT, the work, frankly, that also happens in our CIO's office. We've got a lot of wonderful resources within GSA. And one area I'd like to highlight is the centers of excellence. So we've got now five centers of excellence within GSA, and they've been teaming up with the U.S. Department of Agriculture. USDA has been a great agency there, the lighthouse agency. And I don't think it's a coincidence that they're also the lead agency for the president's management agenda on IT modernization. But they've given us the opportunity to go in and work with them, not just on reducing some of their internal challenges. So they went from 22 CIOs to one CIO. We've worked with them wait, on- Wait a second. The Department of Agriculture had 22 CIOs? Had 22 CIOs, yes. Holy smokies. They're down to one. So they've done some wonderful work there. They deserve congratulations they do. for that. They've done, I mean, Absolutely. It's, it's, they've, <laughs> and they've been such a great partner. I mean, Secretary Purdue and Deputy Secretary Sensky have been great to work with. They ranged for us when we were out in Kansas City with Margaret Weikert and Suzette Kent and I um, and uh, Jeff Pond from OPM were all out in Kansas City for the launch of the President's Management Agenda. And we spent part of an afternoon meeting with a group of farmers out there about how could we help them through technology modernization have USDA provide better service to those farmers. And it was a customer experience, customer-centered 
design uh, session. And the things that came out of it, you know, there were some really tech-centric focuses that we were able to look at. For example, in most cases, farm equipment, tractors, does a better job of tracking what's been planted than a USDA map does. Uh, so how could we link those two up? But there were some other transformative issues that came about, which is the farmers said, first and foremost, stop treating us as if we're individuals. We're businesses. We're LLCs. We may be a family that's running this, but we're an LLC. And all of your processes are still geared to this idea that it's one person running this farm rather than it, you know, being a group of us who are doing this together. So it gave us a lot of opportunities to try and make sure we're designing the right systems for them. We're helping them with cloud modernization. We're helping them with uh, some of their systems architecting. But we're also helping them with contact centers and customer experience. So trying to put those pieces together so that they have a better result for farmers at USDA. Right. So you know, that's you know fascinating stuff because I'm just thinking about you're you're talking about the underlying requirements, mm-hmm. what the customer actually really wants in terms of service, and then translating that into a solution, like how what IT gets you there. It's um, is fascinating to listen to. Well, and I think the other great part is that TTS and the Centers of Excellence have come in, and. Well, there's a core group of feds who are involved in this, and we've actually partnered really well with the Department of Agriculture on this. So they've actually detailed 10 people into these centers of excellence as well. We're working together to set the requirements, but the fulfillment's going to be done by contractors. So it's not a question of the government going in and building its own you know, proprietary system again, but really of the government trying to figure out how can we leverage best practices that are already out there in the private sector and keep modernizing them. And this isn't a one-time you go in, you fix something, and you're out. It's about how do you create the process within that agency so it's a continual process of modernization Continuous improvement. Well. Yeah, yes. Absolutely. Emily, we're already up on the break. That's amazing. Uh, we, when we, so this, we're up to our last segment. Okay. So um, let's talk a little bit more about IT modernization, and then we talk a little bit about uh, the GSA schedules program, You know, its vision. Couple major items there is the order level materials uh, new rule and also the commercial supplier agreement uh, new rule. Big big wins for GSA and for for contractors and customer agencies as well. My guest today is Emily Murphy, administrator of the General Services Administration, and you are listening to Off the Shelf on Federal News Radio fifteen hundred AM. Welcome back to Off the Shelf on Federal News Radio fifteen hundred AM. Today, my guest is the administrator of the General Services Administration. Emily Murphy. Emily, um, so we're at the last segment, and I know we got a little bit more on IT modernization than we can talk about one of my favorite topics, the schedules program. Uh, but first, uh, a little bit about the Technology Modernization Fund and you know what's going on there. So I'm really excited because I'm the first GSA administrator who gets to use this tool. Uh, GSA has a role on the board for the Technology Modernization Fund. We've also got the Program Management Office within GSA. GSA is being represented on the board by Alan Thomas, the Federal Acquisition Service Commissioner. And we've got $100 million in this fund right now where they're going in, they're assessing business cases. Some of the business cases have made it the second round. We're still accepting new business cases. And it's a chance to really invest in IT modernizations that have the ability to offer long-term savings. So the business cases, agencies say, hey, we want to modernize or invest in this particular capability. Mm-hmm. They present them to the board, and and, and there's an evaluation there, for and seed money is provided. So there is then a loan from the fund, okay. and then the agency has to pay that fund back over a period of years. 
They're supposed to pay the fund back out of the savings they've achieved from the modernization. So obviously one of the first criteria that the board's looking at is, will this actually obtain yeah, what's the, the return on yeah, investment? Is, it, yeah. you know, is this a safe investment? Yeah. But they're also looking at the impact on the agency mission. Is it going to help the agency? Is it something innovative that could be replicated elsewhere? Is it something that's going to work across agencies? So they're looking beyond just the one specific investment into, you know, how can this really be a transformative process? How can this be a tool for greater modernization across government? And, you know, Congress was generous enough to give us $100 million to seed the fund. We've asked for another $210 million this year as part of the appropriations process. The last year we're authorized to ask for funds for the TMF. So hopefully we'll receive that because that would give us, a, you know, a good core you know, seed money that we could go out and do some wonderful things with. Right. It seems to me that would be just the whole process in and of itself could be beneficial in the sense that uh, the sharing of ideas about uh, how is. to change things yes. and address, even if you don't yes. invest in them, you might learn things that people say, hey, that's a good idea. I can go do that someplace else. Is that it, part of it? It is. And it's brought together a lot of agencies that may not have had these conversations previously also. And they're meeting every Monday afternoon. So it's fostered a lot of dialogue and a lot of cooperation across the agencies. Right. Okay. So, let any other last thoughts about you know where that's going or? Um, I'm hoping that we're not too far away from the initial awards. There are none this time, but I, I think that they want to be very careful, make sure they they choose the right projects. But I know they're making a lot of progress and they're working really hard on it. I'm excited to see what comes out of it. Yeah, I think it would be, it's imperative to get that first one right, right, to validate mm-hmm. you know the whole concept, right. Um, and, and show the stakeholders that, you know, this is good business, good government business, right? Um, okay, so speaking of government business, let's talk a little bit about the GSA Schedules Program. Um, and first, just, you know, mm-hmm. your thoughts on the program as a whole and where it's going. And then, you know, and then we could talk maybe about a couple of the big wins that you had this year. Well, you know, I'm a big fan of the Schedules Program. I think it provides a great opportunity for both small businesses, medium-sized businesses, large businesses, to provide you know commercial goods and services to customer agencies in a more streamlined process. I point out that you know about 80% of our vendors are small businesses, but 40% of the dollars go to small business. Given my background and all my work with small business, I'm very excited about the opportunities schedules create for those firms. And the government goal is still 23%? 23%. Right. So yes. if you're doing schedules doing 40%, that's a great tool uh, in cool the to toolbox. Yeah. Yes. That said, do I think there's room for schedules modernization? Absolutely. Two areas I'm excited about where we've had wins already. We got the order level materials rule published, and this allows for other direct costs to be put against schedules, up to 30% of the value of a task order. I think you'll remember this from when we worked together before when they, it was other direct costs, so they called it the ODC rule. And if I recall, you tried to rename it the contract support items or CSI rule at one point. That's like a TV show, isn't it, CSI? Yeah, yeah, uh, and I, I'm blaming you for that <laughs> yeah, one. Okay. <laughs> uh, we had to get this rule passed because I couldn't learn a fourth acronym for OLMs, but I'm really excited about that. Uh, yeah, I think so it's going to offer a lot of opportunities for schedules. Also, one area internally I'm excited, I think it's going to make it easier for the public building service to be a better customer of GSA schedules. Um, so th- I think that in and of itself is a great win. Right, and, and I just, you know, just... Uh, you know, to mm-hmm. say that is a it's a huge win for GSA in terms of contractor perception too. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's something that industry's been focusing on for quite a while, and to see it added to the program 
it's a best value approach for customer agencies, for contractors. It can reduce, it, it ties mm-hmm. into your priorities. It can increase competition. Um, it certainly know, reduces duplication yeah, if you absolutely. don't have to go out with a full and open uh, Make great, Greater functionality for the schedules program, mm-hmm. absolutely. Let's us better leverage the acquisition workforce we have. It's, I think it's a great win. Right, and you had another one you wanted to another mention? Another one is uh, the, the CSA rule. So we got the, uh, the commercial supplier agreements are now in place also, which standardizes 11, the terms and conditions for commercial software licensing. Makes it much easier for commercial software providers to do business with the government using the schedules program. Again, reduces the duplication for those vendors, but also means that we don't have to have our contracting officers negotiating licenses and makes us, frankly, a more predictable customer. Absolutely. I, you know, that's, that's one of the key features of that rule that it, it sort of articulates those things because there are certain things that the government just can't accept that aren't in typical government mm-hmm. commercial licenses, like choice of law and things like that. And this takes care of that and takes it out of the, you know, the negotiation issue. It should, and it goes to streamlining absolutely um, the process. So right. that's another one where I think industry is very pleased that the rule came out. So other other thoughts right. on the schedules? I know you mentioned Sorry. earlier about um, reducing duplication in terms right. of number of schedules. Do you have any additional thoughts on that? I just want to improve catalog management on the schedules to make it easier for customers to find the goods and services, frankly, make it easier for our vendors to promote their goods and services there as well. It's frustrating when you go into GSA Advantage or try to go through the schedules and find the item you need only to find that it's no longer available or it's hard to do a comparison across schedules. So to the extent we can improve that, to the extent that we can also use the schedules to create a marketplace. One area I know we've talked about in the past also is the proliferation of SINs. And I always yes. feel like that Don't sounds... Don't be sinful. Yes. Well, doesn't it always sound like I'm talking about something much more interesting than the, yes, creation, right. the proliferation of special item numbers? Uh, but you know, making sure that we've got the right business case in place for those special item numbers before we put them out there and that we're not creating a burden there. And I think they serve a purpose to the extent that we make it easier for agencies to locate an approved solution. I think that's a great use of a SIN. But I do think we want to be very cognizant that when you create a new SIN, that it does create additional paperwork and does create an additional burden. It can create change how the market operates. And looking forward to, if we are looking at combining schedules or how we can modernize schedules or improve catalog management, one of the questions I have is how do SINs evolve with that? And are they going to be the same? Uh, I don't think that they'll be in the same shape they are right now. I'm not sure exactly where they're going to end up, but I think that's going to be another, another great opportunity for some dialogue with industry and with our customers. Uh, and you mentioned marketplace, uh, mm-hmm. and uh, I just wondered, we only have about a, about a minute left, just ideas on you know pricing you know that marketplace and the way the commercial marketplace works and the idea that schedules are supposed to mirror that. So pricing flexibility and i'm even thinking things like cloud or or and how cloud is priced you know and um things like that in the schedules context do you have any so thoughts on that or? i'll say one area that we've actually got a legislative proposal in is to try and increase competition on service contracts it was the idea of having an unpriced service contract because frankly right now gsa is spending a lot of time negotiating with industry to put in place ceiling prices for labor hours without having any real requirement behind them and what that succeeds in doing is making is creating a lot of paperwork for a lot of small businesses. Uh, frankly, creating a lot of paperwork for GSA also. A lot of paperwork for medium and for large medium businesses, and large too, businesses yeah. too. Yeah. 
But what I'd really love to see us doing instead is driving that competition at the task order level and making sure that when we have the actual solution that we're seeking to buy in mind, that we're getting a very vigorous competition at that point in time, rather than trying to create an artificial ceiling price somewhere you know, for a hypothetical requirement down the road. I think that would save, frankly, industry a lot of, of headaches, but mm-hmm. I think it would also lead to us getting better solutions because we wouldn't be looking at price in a more of a best value concept rather than as a lowest price technically acceptable concept. Right. And, you know, I think that's another thing. I think that could have the impact it could have on competition and just access to the marketplace itself in terms of innovative solutions. Um, you know, that's, that would have great potential to do that for the government customer. Uh, Emily, you know what? We're already up at the time. So I want to thank my guest today, Emily Murphy, for joining uh, me on the show. Emily, it's great to see you. Great seeing you, Roger. Thanks so much for having me. And you've been listening to Off the Shelf on Federal News Radio, 1500 AM. You've been listening to Off the Shelf with Roger Waldron of the Coalition for Government Procurement. If you missed any part of this program, you can hear the entire show or any of our weekly programs anytime at federalnewsradio.com. Off the Shelf only on Federal News Radio 1500 AM and federalnewsradio.com. To be your best every day, you need proven quality sleep every night. Science proves your best sleep is vital to your mental, emotional, and physical health. And that's where the sleep number bed comes in. And let me tell you, ever since I've had it, My Sleep IQ score is just going higher and higher. And did you know 8 out of 10 couples say that one of them sleeps too hot or too cold? Science tells us regulating your sleep temperature leads to higher quality sleep. For many couples, temperature struggles are a real challenge. So here are some tips to help you both sleep just right. Look for beds designed with temperature benefits such as the new Sleep Number Climate 360 Smart Bed that actively warms and cools each side so you both sleep blissfully comfortable. And now save 40% on the Sleep Number 360 Special Edition Smart Bed. Plus, special financing for a limited time. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com slash podcast one. Sleep Number, the official sleep and wellness partner of the National Football League. Subject to credit approval, minimum monthly payments required. See sleepnumber.com for details.